Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Welcome back to Paris History Advocate Hemingway. I'm back with Claudine, and we have a very special show for you today. We are focusing on a French serial killer. So we got some true crime for you guys. <laughs> going to be a two-part series. There's a lot about this guy. His name is Henry Landru, and Claudine's going to take it away from here. Yeah, it's it's very special. We're talking about a serial killer. Yeah, we brought out a woman. Now we're talking about serial killers. We now we're going to talk about the guy that killed them. But no, this was, um, I've, I've had this list going of some of like true, some like Parisian French true crime. And this guy was at the top of the list. So we're going to have a few weeks of some really great stories. The one we're going to do after this, I'm also really excited. The next four we're doing after this, I've already done all the research on. And um, one of them was giving me bad dreams. So you can oh, look no. forward to that. <laughs> um, but this one is really, really interesting. And you might have, sometimes people have known about him because they call him the French Bluebeard. Um, his name was um, Henri Désiré Landru. So his middle name was literally Desire. Um, but he was born on the 12th of April, 1869 in Paris. He was born over in the 19th um, near the Bout Charmont in um, Belleville. And he was a son of Alexander Sylvain Landru. Um, his father ended up actually later uh, killing himself um, in the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, but his, you know, he came from this very like, you know, working class family, you know, nothing very special. But they ended up moving over to the Ile de la Cité. They lived up, he lived on the Rue de Coster uh, Notre Dame. So literally that street that runs next to Notre Dame that now is like souvenir shops and um, and restaurants. But that's also where a lot of the offices of the church is as well. But he lived right there. He, I was shocked to hear, to read, and then he was actually a member of the choir of the Église Saint-Louis en Lille, which is that little tiny church that's on the Ile Saint-Louis. And he was going to be actually as a, he was working towards being a deacon. So oh. he t- really takes a like a, a sharp right turn someplace down the road. Because <laughs> <laughs> originally he was going to go into the church um, and his parents wanted him to follow into the, you know, seminary. But, you know, eventually he decided, you know, maybe that just wasn't enough excitement for old um, Henri Desiree. Uh, but he met his cousin. He was rekindled his cousin. And, you know, it's funny when I'm doing research and you come across things where they say, oh, and, you know, because he, he married his cousin and, you know, people are like, oh, and he married his cousin. It's like that, as you know, of listening to this podcast for almost three years now, this story of somebody marrying their cousin is like every other episode. Yeah, that's very so, cool those times. And it's not like, you know, I mean, it's not like they marry their sister. If you even now, I think it's even legal to technically marry your cousin. Like you have to be like one removed or something like that. But, you know, it, it still happens. It's just a little weird. But he met, he rekindled with his cousin, Marie Catherine Remier. Um, they began a relationship in 1889. He, she actually lived very close. She lived on the Rue Saint-Louis-en-Lille, which is just the same street where the church is. They had their first child in 1891, um, and they were married later in 1893 after he had a three-year military service that he uh, served 
curve. Back then it was a mandatory, everybody had to do it. That went all the way until like the early 1980s that you had to do this three-year military service. They finally got rid of that. Three more kids came along. They had Maurice Alexander in 1894, Suzanne in 1896, and Charles in 1900. And those uh, kids come up a little bit towards the end of the story as well. Uh, but during this time, Henry um, had held, held 15 different jobs. He went from being a contractor to a cartographer, which, you know, made maps. He, none of them gave him very much money. And, you know, he, now he has five, you know, mouths to feed at home. And so he needed, you know, a little bit more money. So old Henri went from being in the church to now being a scam artist. His first scam was obtaining a patent for a new bike. That was a oil bicycle and it was the Landru with a Renault engine. So basically it was a very early, like now those motorized bikes are like electric bikes are all the rage. Old Landru kind of had the idea to do it back in the, you know, late 19th century. He's a smart dude. Yes, a pretty smart dude. So at the time to do this scam, to really nail it home, he rented multiple offices and even a factory he took out ads in the papers at offering a very special introductory price saying, you know, if you paid a third of the money down, you know, you get to, you know, say it was, you know, a thousand francs instead of 3000 francs. If you pay that now, you could, you know, you'll get this greater deal. So all of these orders came in because everybody thought this is such a great idea. You know, we don't have to like actually, you know, do a lot of work on our bicycle. So, but he took all the money and then just disappeared. Oh. So of course that was, you know, gone and nobody knew. So he started using fake names. He used one fake name after another. In the end, they figured out that he had more than a hundred fake names. And back then it was really easy, you know, to do all of these things The some of the, the, the people that we're going to talk about in the next like month or so, I don't think you could get away with this now. There's just too much forensic. There's too many things. There's just too, you know, we started talking about French paperwork. They obviously didn't have that stuff back then, (laughs) but he was um, sentenced to to prison three times between 1904 and 1906, but he never, he'd go and serve a couple weeks and then he'd get out and he's supposed to go to the other one and he'd disappear. But a a psychiatrist one day um, met with him and confirmed that he was had a a quote unquote sick mental state. And so at, on your third, third sentence, which was kind of like an almost third strike you're out, which is a big thing in the States, he was able to sidestep it because of that psychiatrist on your third strike that they wanted to send you to Guyana, which is where most, where this prison was. It was very isolated. And a lot of prisoners went there and they never survived. They would die there, not because they had a death sentence, but just because they just wouldn't survive it. Um, so he, when he heard that was going to happen, he was able to evade the law again. This time he did, had a new scam where he purchased a, he went to go buy a garage. He then quickly resold it, but he never actually paid the original owner. So he bought a business, sold, resold the business, but never actually paid for the business in the first place. And then somebody gave him all this money and he took off. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So this was like, you know, we're getting into right before World War One starts. Um, And so he, at that point was sentenced to four more years in prison, but in absentia, which, you know, basically he wasn't in court. They didn't know where he was, but you know, if we find him, here's this, he already has this sentence. He's going to prison. Um, but he rarely served, you know, any of these, cause he was kind of always like able to outsmart them, change his name, move around. Um, so now it's that, you know, a couple of years later, it's the start of the great war that they called it. 
but you know, we'd all know as World War One later. Um, the men were dying on the battlefield, and of course, that left a lot of women back in Paris at this time. They were now because so many were gone. Women were able to work, and so some women were able to pick up these jobs. You know, working in you know factories and doing a lot of the work that the men have been doing, but that had been sent out. But of course, a lot of these men never came back. They were killed in battle. They were killed on the front. And so it left a lot of women, you know, struggling what to do as far as how to get money. So, of course, some of them, you know, wager down into prostitution. But Henry uses to his advantage. And in 1914, he posted an ad in the paper. This was going to be the first of many ads. And the ad said, widow with two children, 43 years old, with a comfortable income, serious and moving in good society with a desire to meet a widow with a view of matrimony. Uh oh! Literally, this today is the weirdos that send me messages on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> we get those same messages. The weirdos years later. The, usually, they just start out with just hi because that's such a huge icebreaker of like, <laughs> oh, who's this guy? He's such a he's got a way with words. I must yeah. respond to him. They've all their profiles are always three days old. They're six pictures of them they're usually in you know they're fake pic- they're, they're real pictures of somebody but these people take them and they're usually like military or a doctor and they yeah. you know it's like wow you're such a wordsmith <laughs> but you know i'm sure this is how they would then come out so he first rented a house um in a little town near chanty um that's uh chaussee uh pre gouvier um he rented that and then he quickly moved to another remote location and bernoulli and he rented this under aliases, of course. And he basically kept to himself and he'd come in and out. So the neighbors started to think maybe he was this German spy because they wouldn't see him for weeks at a time. Then he'd come out, come back. He'd come back into the house, go in there, close up the curtains, you know, and then he'd disappear for a time. His first victim, um, you know, because of these women that would answer this, these messages, he had 283 women answer these ads um, over a period of a few years. And we know of 10 victims. So spoiler alert, this is how he finds them. We know of 10 victims, but it's many believe that he, by looking at uh, police documents, that most likely there was probably far more. Um, They just, you know, because of the time, again, they just didn't do a lot of the, you know, forensic investigation that they needed to. Uh, But these women needed to be lonely and without a circle of friends or family. So they wouldn't really be missed. And they would, and of course, needed to have money. So his first victim, um, or victims we could call him, was Jean Couchet and her son. Jean was a 39-year-old widow, widow and worked as a laundress in Paris. The two met by chance, actually, walking in the Jardin de Luxembourg in, the, in February of 1914. So that's great. You know, I walk through there all the time. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, I don't find a serial killer. But he uh, ended up meeting her, and they actually had kind of a little courtship. Um, he would end up actually, when he'd meet these women, he'd kind of size them up, decide if they had the money that he wanted. Um, he was a short man. He had a very pointy, wiry beard. I will post some pictures of him um, on my on ClaudiaHemingway.com. And so you can see exactly who he is, because the great thing is, is because this was the start of the 20th century. We do have photos. Um, not always, you know, a lot of our stories we tell, we're, you know, we'll show you a painting <laughs> before <laughs> f- photographs were done. Uh, but he, you know, he would charm these women. He was very good. He apparently, you know, had was quite charismatic. He proposed marriage pretty quickly with them. 
which was not out of the question back then. That's what a lot of, you know, happened a lot of times. They'd go to a, the bank. They would have to, to add Henry to their bank accounts. Um, sometimes they would ask like for his documents and he would say, oh, I was born in this little town um, in Alsace that, you know, has gone back and forth between German and French territory. And all of those things have been dis- destroyed and everybody was just like, okay, like, you know, that made sense back then. That did happen. Yeah. Um, he'd also have them add, um, add him as a power of attorney so that he could get, you know, get into everything. Um, so then he would um, decide to take them away for the weekend. So he ended up finding a different location in Gambe. He entered, it was even more remote. He rented this little place uh, called the Villa Chic. Um, it was almost a thousand feet to its nearest neighbor. Um, he moved in one day and the neighbor notices, uh, noticed that a very large stove was also being delivered, um, like huge stove. The town thought this was really odd because they never saw the same woman with him more than once. Um, they'd, you know, see this woman come in and then weeks later he'd come back and it'd be a different woman. Um, there was nothing, you know, from him, uh, for weeks at a time. And, uh, but one day the, the neighbors would notice this really horrible odor coming from his house, from his direction. And the town, this town of Gambe knew this smell because one time years before that, there was a uh, father Trimbo who lived there, lived there. He lived alone. He loved to sit by his fire at night, you know, having some whiskey. And he would, one of those, you know, when you find, when you go out into the country, those fireplaces, you know, that are literally like you go walk into them. They're massive. Um, And he had this huge fireplace and he was sitting um, very close to it. probably a very cold night, had a little bit too much whiskey. And he literally fell into the fireplace while it was burning. And he died. Like he was so drunk, passed out that he, it didn't even wake him up. He was burned to death in his fireplace. So it put this horrific smell through the town. Well, now the town was like, Hey, this smell reminds us of something. But they, at this time, because it's during the war, the city itself only had one police officer. There was only one guy and it was probably like, you know, his side hustle. (laughs) So it really wasn't like, it, it wasn't like this huge, you know, huge thing where, you know, people were like, Hey, this is what kind of smells, but they'd go over there. They'd knock on the door. You know, he would be there. He wouldn't be there. And if he was there, they would just find nothing weird, you know, because he, it wasn't like there's old Henri over there with his wife, you know, Victoria that we see every week. And now we don't see her for a while. They didn't <laughs> see him for a long time. And then he's, they'd see him with the woman once. And that was it. Wow. So in 1918, and we'll get into more of how this whole thing unfolded and what he did. Uh, But in 1918, a woman named Miss Pelé sent a letter to the mayor of the town asking about her friend, uh, Mademoiselle Anne Colomb, who had been engaged to Monsieur Dupont, who had moved with her to um, Gambé. But they had no record of Miss Dupont or even a Mr. Dupont in the town. Um, so they replied that they didn't know of either one of them. Months later, another letter arrives um, at, from a Mademoiselle Lacoste who was looking for her sister, Celestine uh, Buisson, who had all moved there as well to with a Monsieur Fremier. Now the mayor thought this was a little bit strange because he is now getting a letter months apart, basically asking about the same thing again, 
he doesn't know there's nobody in the town but that name either. They learned, um, he decided to put these two women in touch with each other and say, hey, we had somebody looking for somebody a few months ago. Maybe you guys, you know, maybe you could help each other out because, you know, maybe this is, you You will find something out. So they actually learned um, that both of their loved ones had answered a uh, a ad in the Le Journal paper uh, one on March 16th and one on May 1st, 1915. And then everything started to really add up and everything that they knew about these men and what their, what their loved ones had, you know, who they contacted just sounded a little bit too familiar. So they actually contacted the prosecution office of the Sen. The prosecutor's office ended up deciding that this sounded viable enough that they ended up appointing the what they would call the Tiger Brigade to the case. And this was a group uh, created under Clemenceau, who was known as La Tigre, the Tiger. Um, he we have talked about him before because he was very good friends with Claude Monet. Um, he created the squad of police um, and that their whole job uh, was to go after some of these cases. And the squad was created by these policemen that had been working on the streets of Paris. So they were, you know, very street savvy. They knew a lot of these people in the underworld. And so they thought, well, this might be, you know, this is probably going to be the perfect case for them. So an inspector named Jules Bellin visited the home, um, Le Hermitage that was owned by Monsieur Chic and uh, was rented to a um, Monsieur Fremier. And Fremier had not been seen in weeks, even though the neighbors rarely saw them. Um, but the first break came when Belen um, learned that Fremier's mail had been forwarded to a Paris address on the Boulevard Nye in the 18th. So maybe close to you. Um, so you have to go see, I'll send you the address, go check it out. Uh, but the address belonged to a woman named Celestine Buisson, um, who we know because she was the second letter that they were when they were looking for her. But on April 18th, 1919, uh, Mademoiselle Lacoste was walking down the Rue de Rivoli and she noticed this man that looked just like Fremier, who was actually Henri Landru. Um, and this woman, um, she, Landru and a woman were coming out of a store on the Rue de Rivoli, the Lyon de Fayence, which was a store that sold, you know, plates and all that kind of fun tableware stuff. So she called the police right away and got to Jules Belin and told him about saying, hey, I saw this man. So Jules Belin goes to, they decide to go to the store. The store was already closed. They ended up finding out the name of the clerk that worked there and his address. He lived outside of Paris, like 10 miles outside of Paris. So they go there to the, the middle of the night to this clerk's house, knock on the door and ask if they had any records. Well, sure enough, Landrew, um, they did have records and Landrew ended up buying two sets of dishes under the name of Lucien Guillet. Um, and probably not the smartest move that he ever did was he purchased these dishes to be delivered to his address oh, wow. <laughs> at 76 uh, Rue de Rochechoir in the night, which is also one of the hardest streets of Paris to say. But <laughs> so they send these dishes to him on the night uh, in the night. And it was late that night that Belen decided he was going to go to that street. Um, and so he goes to that street and was waiting outside and it's the early hours now of April 12th, 2019 or 1919, sorry. <laughs> um, and 
he waited. Nobody was there. He knocked on the door. Nobody was there. He was like, I'm just going to wait outside on the, on this uh, sidewalk for him. He ended up getting inside the building and decided he would now, because he waited uh, at this point already for a day. And he ended up going inside the apartment and literally just sitting outside the door on the landing, waiting for Landrew to appear. Um, It was just after 8 a.m. on April 12th. He knocked on the door and through through the door, Landrew came and told him to come back, that he wasn't dressed. But Belen was not going to take that for, you know, his answer. And he persisted until Landrew finally let him in. He was standing there in his pajamas and Belen interrogated him. And a young woman was also there. Her name was Fernanda Segre, which we'll hear about later as well. She was very distraught with the questions that they were asking. And she fainted in the kitchen. Um, and she, all she knew about Landry was he was this incredibly lovely man. But what she didn't know is that he had already tried to kill her twice by poisoning her. Oh, my God. Yeah. Nice. So it was also the fifth, his 50th birthday. So it was on Landry's 50th birthday. And that he was, they decided to bring him down to the police station during a search of the apartment. Um, they found that he also had a storage unit. He had two storage units in these storage units were piles and piles of women's clothes, wigs, dentures, furniture, clothes, everything. Just basically if you took your entire apartment and put it into a storage unit today, that's what they had in two storage units. In it, they had so much stuff that there was no way this was just from one person's home. Wow. That's so creepy. Yeah. The one thing about Landrew also was that he was incredibly organized and took notes about everything, which was also very stupid if you were going to become a serial killer. Um, His most damaging thing, as they found, was they found a locked trunk. Um, and in it, he had business logs and details basically of all of his crimes, but he stopped short to the point where it was so detailed that it would end up hurting him in the end. Um, at the central police station on the Ile de la Cité, he was questioned for 24 hours, which is what they could hold him for, but he wouldn't open, offer anything. At one point he even got tired and he just put his head down on the desk and went to sleep. And when he slept for like three hours and when he woke up, he woke up like, you know, like he just woke up from a nap. Like, what else do you guys want to ask me? Like he was completely unfazed. He wasn't nervous about any of this, even though he was obviously guilty. Um, He ended up, uh, they ended up um, taking him back to his apartment, looking through more of his stuff. When they took him back to the, to the uh, police station again, he now had his coat on. And when they looked in his coat, they found two different uh, ledgers. One of them he had hidden into the lining of his coat. Um, but as they started looking through things, they found something in his apartment that said, had a picture of him that had the name Henri Landrieu. So when they brought him, when they brought that back to the station and showed it to him, he then admitted that, yes, that's who he really was. And now they ended up finding all of these cases all of the times he'd been arrested for crimes that he was sentenced to prison. And now everything started to unfold a little little bit more. Um, On April 14th, 1919, that he was officially charged with murder, but they didn't know how many yet. Yikes. Oh my gosh. That is just 
chilling. And I want to know more about this poor woman who was poisoned twice and survived somehow. Also, what the heck happened to his family? Where were his kids and his original wife? Like, it's so well, crazy. I'll tell you that because that was one thing. Like, I was least at least twenty four hours into doing research about him and going, "What about the wife and kids?" Like, nothing I was coming across. But of course, because I am like a dog with a bone. I didn't let it go. And I will tell you next week how the trial goes and about the family. Wow. Well, thanks to Claudine for being a dog with her bone. <laughs> and we <just> <laughs> Next week, I hope you guys will listen to the second part next week. And thanks for listening to Claudine. Make sure you check out ClaudineHemingway.com. She can book travel for you, get you on a tour. And tune in next week, guys. Thanks for listening today, guys. If you're interested in learning more about Claudine, her tours, history, and the beautiful photographs that she posts all over Instagram, tune into her website, ClaudineHemingway.com.